0: All right, so our message title is called Bloom Where You Were Planted. This came as I was just reflecting on where many of the people in the church are. You know, as pastor, it's a, it's a blessing to get to know people's lives, to get to know what people are going through. Uh, and I, I have to say, in general, I'm proud of what's happening in the church. I really am. Um, let's pick up in Matthew 13. Uh, we're going to start around the 24th verse. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the weeds sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servant came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, do you want us to go out and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you are pulling up the weeds, you may root up the wheat with them. Come on now, say with them. them. You don't like wheat and weeds to grow together. You hope wheat and weeds don't grow together. But in this parable, they're growing side by side, aren't they? Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them into bundles to be burned. Uh, We could teach on eschatology using that verse, but you wouldn't like what I would have to say. So I promise tonight to be nice. Tie them in bundles to be burned. Then gather the wheat and bring them into my barn. Come on, who is the owner in the parable? Who is the owner of the fields? This, This is the God of glory. And you know what he said? He said, let them grow together. The most miserable I've ever been is when I separated myself from the world and tried to create businesses that were Christian businesses. We surrounded ourselves by Christian music. Doesn't that sound just delightful? We had prayer times. We, uh, We only did things in honest and ethical ways. And that sounds like such a great business model, sure to succeed. Except the Lord of Glory called us to grow right next to weeds. He never said, no, no, go go put some weed killer on it. Kill all the weeds. Get rid of that so my wheat will mature. In fact, weaker wheat, you know from the parable of the sower, might get choked out. But wheat that made it, wheat that grew, it must have been tapped into a source. It must be strong. It must have reached maturity. The king of the universe is not interested in removing obstacles from your life. He's not. He's not interested in segregating you. You know, we went through a time period from the 60s into the late 80s where great men of God, and they were great, I don't say that facetiously, great men of God built little kingdoms, right? It usually started with a powerful church, then it grew into a church and a Bible school, then usually a theological uh, university, a seminary, and then sometimes housing and sometimes uh, businesses associated with it and on and on. So that some towns like Springfield, Missouri or Tulsa, Oklahoma or Baton Rouge, Louisiana are forever associated with it. And you know what God did in the late 80s? It blew them all up. Every one of them became associated with enormous scandal. And he scattered his salt back out into the fields where it was supposed to be. We have a tendency to want to segregate. And... Segregation didn't work in any of its social settings, and it doesn't work in spiritual settings. To segregate means to insulate you from everything that might contaminate you. And it misses a point. It misses an enormous point. You were supposed to affect them. They were never supposed to affect you. Look at, at uh, Matthew 13, 44. Brother Michael brought this point out one time when he was preaching, and it was so good that I, I don't, I'll never forget it. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. What did he buy? The field. With everything in it. The Lord bought it all with everything in it. wheat, tare, rock, wheat, hard path, uh, good soil, bad soil. He bought the whole field. Now, when Brother Mike was preaching, he said he bought the whole field because he hoped to get you. But you know what else? That is definitely true, and I hope you take that away from it. He bought the whole field because he knew by design that if what was planted was genuine and it stayed tacked into him, he did not need to go weed out everything else. At maturity time, at judgment time, at harvest time, it would become self-evident. This is why you have a separation of sheep and goats in the Bible. It's it's, it's why you didn't separate them before the end of the ages, you separated them at the end. They had all of the ages to decide what they were going to be. Isn't it good to have decided to be wheat? To decided to be a sheep? It's good to decide to be the Lord's, but you know what we cannot do? We can't begin to shoot everything that looks like a predator around us were you sometime at one time in your life were you something other than what you are now so what happened did did you have some cross-pollination did something fall from a plane did a track land in your hands as you were sitting in front of a bar looking at a beer what happened you mean somebody rubbed shoulders with you come on you know the olive tree is often used in the bible I mean, we, we hear about it. We, I, we see them. There's 2,000-year-old there's olive trees right outside the city of Jerusalem in the Garden of Gethsemane. I've seen them. They've done all kinds of studies on it to show that they're at least 2,000 years old. Olive trees do not grow in good soil. They're one of the few plants. If you Wikipedia the article, I've shown it so many times here I've decided not to tonight. If you Wikipedia, it says they are prone to disease when in healthy soil. But when in soil, whatever calcareous means, when in calcareous soil, poor soil, rocky soil, they thrive. Come on, Christians are the same way. We spend a lot of time bemoaning our circumstances. In fact, if you get into the thick of worship, every service, you, you'll notice this. Right as there begins to be what the Hebrews call kavod in the room, and you start to sense, we're not alone. <laughs> might be angels in here. One hops up, and runs to the bathroom. One runs to the car. Somebody suddenly has an injury. Thinks, this is like playing a superior athletic team that is losing in the fourth quarter and everybody's pulling hamstrings. You remember that, Matthew? We're getting beat like a dog. We got up by two touchdowns and all of a sudden all of the star players on the other team are, oh, oh, coach, coach when the spirit of god begins to move in a place that has a way of sifting through the people and you find out who wants and who doesn't want well a worship service is one way to do that you know what another way to do it is in a workplace trial tribulation having to work next to a weed who He's finding a way to wrap himself around you. You know, you come in and say, praise God, how y'all doing this morning? Well, my back hurts, my ear hurts. I broke a hair back here. Can you see it? Have you ever seen? You know one problem with arguing about who's the weakest, who's the sickest, who's the most motion sick, who's the most, 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 most? You might win the argument, and then what have you gotten? Right? Have you ever found yourself arguing about something like that? Whose heart was broken worst? whose life was most difficult? I had to walk uphill both ways to school. You know, I mean, what happens if you win that argument? Congratulations, you're the biggest loser. Is that really what we want? No. no, it's not. God puts us in circumstances that drive us to Him. The first thing that He did with man outside the garden, and I, I promise not to turn to Genesis tonight because I do it every time I preach. The first thing that he did is he said, cursed is the ground for your sake. So why cursed is the ground for my sake? Because I'm going to teach you to bloom where you're planted and here's how it's going to work. You're going to need me every day. In fact, the creation itself at times is going to kick against you and it's, it's for your good. Uh, it's no longer just going to sprout vegetation for you. In fact, there's going to be thorns and thistles. There's going to be difficult things that are going to poke you and make you hate sin. Right there's going to be hard things. Am I the only one who experiences those in life? No. Right now, I have blisters all over my body, from here to right here, because I spent too much time in the sun. It's a bad choice. I'm going to go ahead and just throw that one out there. This is not a spiritual affliction. It's it's not. I'm not a victim uh, against the sun guild that had a, a, a you know a personal vendetta against me. It was just a bad choice. And you know what that reminds me not to do? Not to take off my shirt, Charlie. (laughs) It'd been about 20 years since I had, and I don't know what I was thinking. But um, sometimes our choices teach us. He makes adversity a teacher over us, Isaiah said. Turn with me then to Matthew 15. Look at what Jesus says about a particular group of religious folks. In Matthew 15, looking at the 13th verse. He replied, every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots. It's interesting. This whole conversation started because the religious teacher said, Jesus, you kind of snubbing our forefathers here. We teach that you got to wash your hands before you eat. Is that a bad idea, monks? Is it a bad idea to wash your hands before you eat? No. Is it a bad idea to assume that somebody's spiritually dirty because they didn't wash their hands? Yes. Yes. Yes, that's a bad idea. So we have a a natural principle and a spiritual principle, and the two don't always cross over. Sometimes people just got dirty hands, but they might have clean hearts. They might have clean hands and dirty hearts. I see a lot of people in three-piece business suits and beautiful houses and two cars. And, you know, they just fit the beautiful American image. And you find out six years later that he was sleeping with his secretary and she was in love with the neighbor and the kids were doing drugs. Right? So you can look beautiful and it not affect the inside of a human being. But when the inside of a human being is beautiful, it begins to radiate outwards. So then we're really missing the point. If you have Jesus there in the flesh, the Lord of glory there to talk to him, is this really the most pertinent subject we could debate? Did we wash our hands or not? Did we use antibacterial soap or not? Do you like dove or do you like dial? I mean, of course, this is kind of where the church is so often, isn't it? You know? Let's have a full-scale debate on whether or not we're going to have wine or grape juice for communion. Because this is the most pressing issue of our time. I know what we'll debate. We'll debate exactly when, or if, or how a person could ever lose salvation. Why don't we debate how you keep it? (laughs) Wouldn't that be good? Why do we get distracted like this? God put us in a situation where there's a difference of opinions. And you know what he said? Relax. Relax his disciples. If they weren't planted by God, they're going to be uprooted. Come on. So God planted seed. God planted something. Did he plant what's growing in you? Are you a work of the Lord? Are you his craftsmanship? Because there is a day when the argument will be over and you will have either reached maturity distinguishing yourself from the weeds that are around you Looking entirely different than the goats that are around you by your behavior. And God will be able to sift you out. Or you'll look exactly like they do and be considered a friend of the world. Do you think that the Pharisees thought that they were different than the world? Of course they did. Do you think that they thought because of their great learning they were different? Yes, Jesus said in the book of John, You search the scriptures diligently because you think that by that you have eternal life, but you refuse to come to me and get it. You know what they were missing? The actions that God would do. So let me ask you something. If we all line up in here and I say, hey, love the person next to you, and you know everybody's watching, what are you gonna do? You're gonna love the person next to you. There's no real test in that. But if I put you in BASF chemical plant, where everybody's hanging out outside, right? They're talking about what they did last night, and what you did last night was a worship service, and suddenly you feel a little bit on the outside of things. How are you going to love them? See, this is the field that Jesus purchased. He purchased the good, the bad, and the ugly, and I'm not going to ask which you are. We're going to let some time tell. Amen? I believe ugly ducklings can get... Or frogs can get kissed and turns into princes if the, if the right person touches them. Over time, our life distinguishes us from the people that are around us based on faith that displays itself in loving action. In fact, Galatians, the fifth chapter, sixth verse, says it's the only thing that counts. It's faith expressing itself through love. So we can be masters of theology. We can have beautiful houses. The picture story of what everything should look like. And if our walk with the Lord is not distinguishing us from the people around us, we still have some growing to do. Is there anybody here that still has some growing to do? Because this pastor does. Jesus bought the whole field. And when he bought the field, I was a weed in it. But I'm a weed who wants to change. I'm a weed who wants to go from sinner to saint. It does not come by uprooting you from the field. It comes from rooting all of those things out of you. That's how this happens. Now, there is a certain wisdom to come apart and be separate. The Lord definitely said it. So when you're first born again, you might need to distance yourself from certain friends that have been a strong influence on you. You might need to distance yourself from activities that are fringish, maybe that that are not the center of what Christians should focus on. You may need to do those things. In fact, I'm just going to step out there and say you should. But this is not what makes you a Christian. What makes you a Christian is that no matter what is going on in your circumstances or your environment around you, something inside of you Something eternal, something pure and unshakable is distinguishing you. So the reason then that we separate ourselves initially is so that we can stand among them and be distinct from them. Yeah? So while Israel was in Egypt, you know how you knew what was different? Well, number one, their culture and their customs were different. But there was this other thing. It would get dark everywhere else and be light in Goshen. Everybody's sons would be dying, but not in Goshen. There'd be plagues, but not in Goshen. God made a distinction between them. If that had happened, if the Israelites had been, say, in North America, like the Mormons say, how would the Egyptians have seen it? Where would the testimony to the world be? Hmm? If they'd been picked up, if they'd been raptured into the sky, like my Southern Baptist friends say, if they just disappeared, where would the witness be? What what would it say on the monuments in Egypt? How many Egyptians would have followed them? Did you know that Egyptians followed the Israelites out? They became Israelites. You know, a little girl named Ruth bloomed where she was planted, didn't she? How did God get her there? It was through blessing, right? Health, wealth, and prosperity brought Ruth right into where she needed to be, didn't it? I mean, she woke up and said, today is Friday. Every day can be Friday. Today is my best life right now. You know what? My husband died. My sister's husband died. My mother-in-law, her husband died. Isn't that a great day? We have no way to support ourselves. Obviously, the blessings of God are leading us towards Him. Isn't that what she said? It's not what she said. And in this situation of extraordinary adversity was God working on her behalf. And it was easy to see in that. Because if God did something as simple as feed her, that would be a testimony to everybody who cared about her. Huh? And then if he appointed even one person who cared about her, she might even call him a kinsman redeemer, a savior. Huh? Easy to identify. See, when the Lord puts us in the middle of a field, full of adversity, and then it cares for us, everyone can see it. The scripture shows picture after picture exactly like that, but I don't have to go through all those. You know why? Your life ought to show the exact same thing. Turn with me to Philippians 3. Let's, let's talk a little bit about attitude. Are y'all done with me already? No. No. Okay, well, that's good. You have this sermon and you have one more, and then the Indians will have to deal with me for a while. You know, when you preach these kind of messages there, though, they're ecstatic. They're like, you could say nine things about adversity and one thing about hope, and and they're like that scene in in the popular movie. They say, there is hope. (laughs) That's, That's what they get out of nine statements about adversity and one about hope. Because when you're surrounded by adversity, light's easy to see. It's so easy to see. We sometimes question... Where God's will is, don't we? Anybody here questioning where God's will is in your life? You know one of the reasons why? This way looks like a blessing. That way looks like a blessing. This way looks like a blessing. That way looks like a blessing. It all looks like a blessing. So look, you know when it becomes easier to determine what God's will is? They want to kill me. They want to kill me. And that guy's about to kill me. I believe God wants me to go this way. It becomes much, much easier. When there's adversity in your life, it has a way of eliminating the superfluous, right? You are never going to walk past a hospital room, or at least very, very rarely. Maybe I shouldn't say never, and hear a person laying there gasping. Hey, we have an ICU nurse in the house. You're not going to hear somebody gasping for their last breath of air, going, "I wish I'd spent more time at work. I wish I'd bought more gadgets. I wished I had entertained myself more." You know what they're doing? They're trying to get their lives right with their families. They're saying, "I'm sorry." They're calling people, or or even the nursing staff sometimes is responsible for helping them get people there so that they can make amends. Suffering has a way of eliminating that which never mattered anyway. He bought the whole field, friends. He bought it all because he wanted something out of you. He did. He wanted you to grow right next to them, and you would either become like them or they would become like you. But either way, it's his field. He bought the whole thing. Here comes Philippians 3. Start in verse 12. Not that I've already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but as I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize For which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Does that sound like an attitude of determination? Nothing else matters. Yes, they wronged me yesterday. Yes, there are people who are preaching while I'm in prison out of selfish ambition. Yes, there are people lying about me. Yes, 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 yes. And I forget all of that, that I might press on to win the prize? Did this man distinguish himself? How many first century Jewish preachers do you think there were? How many first century Pharisees do you think there were? Why are you reading this man's work? Said, well, it's in the Bible, Eric. How did it get there? Because among all those that heard the gospel, this guy's life so distinguished himself from everyone else. He had an unconquerable purpose. Was it because he was isolated and he wasn't around any weeds? No no goats in his life? Really? I mean, he says about Alexander the blacksmith, <clears throat> may he get everything that's due him on that day. That's about as far as he would go. May he get everything that's due him on that day. Did he have some adversity in his life? Do you think he just loved it when they were leading him in Acts 16 while in prison? But he was singing hymns. Did that distinguish him? When his jail door, the cell to his door, had an earthquake from God and swung open, and he didn't leave his cell, did that distinguish him? How anxious are you to leave a difficult situation? What if God put you in that situation because he bought that whole field? Isn't it interesting? When we ask a man's occupation, what if we say, Matthew, what field do you work in? God bought it. Fred, what field do you work in? God bought it. Come on now, CJ, what field are you going to learn? Oh, well, there, my trade's going to be well. He bought it. He bought a painter. He bought it. Salesman. He bought it. That means the ugly people there, he bought it. He bought it. He did it. Now, why? Oh, well, just so that he could burn them on the last day. He had two apostles that thought like that. James and John thought like that. Lord, can we call him fire? And i got to confess, sometimes that happens to me too. (laughs) Lord, we know it's wrong to call down fire. I cannot slap them around, son. Jesus said, you don't know what spirit you're of when you speak like that. What a hard thing to say. There's only two available sources. He said, you're standing with me, the king of the wheat. (laughs) It's not Wheaties. The king of the sheep. And you're talking just like a wheat. I don't want to burn them, I want to save them, I want them to change. So why did God put you in your field, Joel? Or why did God tell you in Romania that he had a new field for you? Yeah. See, he bought that field and he wants you to bloom right where he planted you. Young Christians have a real issue. I didn't say it, Watchman knee did. So if you find it within you to be able to get angry with a man that was in prison for the gospel in China, then by all means get mad at him for saying it about you because it was him that said it. He said, young Christians are long on activity and short on obedience because they do that which they like and refuse that which they dislike. See, this field is hard. There's ugly people in it. There's rocks in it. I'm not getting paid what I should get paid to grow in this field. This field has bad soil. I want that field In fact, God told me, isn't that the charismatic uh, get out of jail free card? God told me to go to that field. So now we hop over here, and y'all, this field is a blessing. (laughs) This field is the best field for about how long? Six months. And then you spend six months trying to restrain yourself from grumbling about it so people will forget the way you talked about god sending you there and then you spend the next six months hoping for some other field and trying to get out of it you know what that's called fickle like a windshield wiper like a wave tossed back and forth what if god called us to bloom right where we were planted even if it's difficult you know it was not so easy to start a church in this town. Streets are pretty crowded with churches. And although everybody claimed to attend one, nobody liked any of them. I can't understand that. And although all the pastors were called to pastor churches in this area, none of them thought there should be another one. I don't know how that works. And most of them resented what they were doing. Hard, hard ground. I spent some time thinking, maybe when he said go west, I should have went east. You know, Florida's that way. You know, a lot of things are that way. Jen, if I didn't have to go through Alabama to get there, I might have. She's from Alabama. Let's pick back up in the Word. That'll get me out of my present condition. In the fourth chapter of Philippians, actually, let's finish 17. Join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave to you. For as I have often told you before, and now say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Sounds like he expected you to be surrounded by people that were enemies of the cross. You know what they weren't, though? They weren't your enemy. Because our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Our struggle is against principality. How often do we really remember that? I mean, all of us know where Ephesians 6.10 is. But how often do we remember that the person who is shouting obscenities at us is not the person we have a problem with? You know why? He's in the field that Jesus fought he belongs to the king he just doesn't know it yet it's my job to make the introduction the one that i have a problem with is the one that's trying to sow bad you. Yeah. the one that i have a problem with is the one that's lying to him and of course he doesn't like me i'm taking his territory he thinks this field is his he bragged one time did you know that he bragged the whole world and all of its kingdoms have been given to me and i can give them to anyone i choose did you know that he said that the devil said that in luke 4. He's wrong. God gave it to Adam. God gave it to Adam. Now I know from a theological standpoint, we say, oh, well, when Adam fell, I, everything under it fell and it became subject to him. Not according to Jesus. He said, it's mine. So even if the devil had temporary holdership of it, my field is God's field. Is on any land? You care what happens to your own land. If your land's not going well, maybe you've got a plumbing problem or something. I don't know. That follows me around everywhere I go. Do you say, I can't wait to leave this stinking land behind? Just get me out of here, Lord. No, because you own it. It's yours. The meat will inherit the earth. Friends, when we care more about God's will in our field than we care about our personal welfare, And it shows ownership. It shows we're God's. It shows that it's our inheritance. When's the last time you thought of your workplace as your inheritance? Doesn't Psalm 2, the 8th verse, ask of me and I will give you the nations as your inheritance? See, these fields of people around us are our inheritance. Is God going to weed some of it out? Yes, but it's not over yet. It's not over yet. In fact, the winnowing fork is in his hand. He's sifting through the wheat he's going to gather into the barn, and the chaff he'll burn with unquenchable fire. Now, do you hate chaff, or do you feel sorry for it? See, that makes me feel sorry for them. So the person who's flipping me off in traffic night and waiting for that that, uh, intersection, because he's going to hop out of the car, and then he's taking the second glance to see just how big of a fellow you are, right? He locks his door and rolls back up his
1: window.
0: <laughs> you don't hate him. You don't want to beat him up. He's in the field that God purchased. You feel sorry for him because he's going to burn and do know it. This is a whole different perspective. It's a whole different way to live, isn't it? It doesn't want to leave this stinking world be behind. It wants to see this world saved. It wants to see it renewed, remade. In the... Uh, 20th verse. But our citizenship is in heaven. I wish that said of heaven. Those prepositions are crazy and I don't want to go through the linguistics here. It's not a citizenship that makes you belong to another place. It's a citizenship that is born of a different order from another place. But you very much are an inhabitant of the earth. And he cares about it. And we eagerly await a savior from there. The Lord Jesus Christ who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies. What is he able to control? Everything. And it's his field. This must mean that there is hope for these people, isn't it? Hmm? How long were people praying for you before you got saved?
1: Hmm?
0: Charlie, how long did people, people care about you before you got saved? Did it take a while, or did you come out of the uterus and <laughs> saved? Made the sign of the cross <laughs> right there. Right? Mario, did it take a while for
1: you?
0: Maybe it'll take a while for them too. Yeah? Maybe it takes a while for them. I don't know. I know that there were people praying for me because I was attached to their daughter. (laughs) They're praying for me. I know I had a praying mama. Sometimes our life is so crazy she didn't know which way was up, but she didn't stop praying for her son. I know it got a whole lot worse for her before it got better. I know that. She watched me one night leave the house, and she knew I was bent on evil. She knew it. She begged me not to go. She had that mama meet her, right? And she was wrong, right, you know. Done in the car. I was bent on something bad. She prayed, right? What are you the fruit of? Are you the fruit of someone else's labor? CJ, I've been watching you in Spirit-filled meetings since you were about two and a half years old. You ever thought about the labor that's gone into your life? You did not just drop out of the sky as you are. Somebody else labored and you are reaping the benefits of it. Most of you who were born again can look back in your family history somewhere. See, somebody was calling on God. He remembered it for a thousand generations. Most of you can do that. Transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like His glorious body. Therefore, my brothers, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, that is how you should, what's that word say? Stand firm. That is how you should stand firm. How? Surrounded by enemies of the cross of, of Christ, but no one God can change them. That's how. We're going to bloom what we're planted because God can change it. I want to encourage you not to bemoan your circumstances. Uh, maybe your body doesn't work right. Uh, Maybe your job's not working right. Maybe you don't have a job. Maybe your circumstances look lower than they could possibly be at any time in history. You know what that means? It means if God does the smallest thing, you're going to notice it. Is that a bad thing? If he does the smallest thing for you, you're going to notice it. Maybe that's what he was after all the time. It's for you to notice. You know when this ministry really had its turning point? I lost my job at Christmas. I lost my job at Christmas, and it was the first Christmas that we had everybody we knew come into our house, a united family, everything. And I'm standing there staring at the presents that are under the tree, and I'm wondering whether or not I can take them back or if my kids have already kind of gotten the idea which ones are theirs, right? Really difficult low place. Of course, God began to give me vision during that time for the way in which I could work in the secular arena and work uh, in the church and how my attentions would no longer be divided, and he would bless the work of my hands, and he was sending me help. Now, not long after Matthew shows up, a lot of neat things happen, but it came from a very, very difficult time. What do you do in your difficult times? Do you press further into him, or do you run from him? Do you move towards him, or further from him? I was talking to a little girl in Romania on Facebook yesterday, She's having some real problems, and she's running the wrong direction. She's on the right road, but she's, she's running the wrong way. You follow me? I said, sweetheart, what happens when you do this and this? I get depressed. Why do you do these things? Because I'm depressed. Well, if you're depressed and that causes you to do them, and when you do them, you become more depressed, why do you do what you do? She said, I don't know. I don't do the things I want to do. I said, neither did the apostle Paul. Let's read Romans 7 together. Who will rescue me, Romans 8, 1 from this body of death? Our King does not remove us from the field, He changes us while we are in it. Look at the 11th verse. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content. In any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, how content are you when you are hungry? Come on now. Don't be sleepy in here. Tell me, how content are you when you're hungry? Not much. Not much. So Dustin doesn't do good when he's hungry, but he's the only one. How content are you when you're sleepy? I have found that the sweetest, most delicate creature that God ever gave mankind, the prettiest, the most amazing woman, Out of all, I mean, the fairest of 10,000 women can occasionally be less than her natural happy self if she's sleepy. How do you learn the secret to being content in every situation? How do you do that? You have to have been in every situation conceivable and found out he's enough. He's enough. So maybe tomorrow's adversity is one more way to show you he's enough. Come on. Some of you deal with pain in your body every day, but you know what? He is enough. See, you don't understand. You don't deal with what I deal with. This is true, but he's enough for you. How do I know that? Because his word says it. And I'm not going to spend all of my time arguing against his word. If you did win the argument, what would be the outcome? There'd be no hope. I'm convinced that that is a real hope. But let's be careful what we fight for. Let's move on. Y'all have that, don't you? Y'all say, Pastor, I understand. We can move on. Okay, the left side of the room didn't understand. We're going to preach a sermon just to you. You understand, Ray? Yes. Ray understands. So we're going to move on. Ray spoke for the left side of the room. He's now your representative. He's going to be levying taxes here later because that's what our representatives do. Turn with me to Numbers 24. The book of Numbers is about numbers? (laughs) No, it has nothing to do with numbers. The book of Numbers is actually about what some people call wanderings. Of course, I don't think they're wanderings. I think it was pretty intentional in a desert. In Hebrew, the book's name is BeMidbar. It means in the desert. By the way, the desert is where he found you. In the beginning, these are the names Of those who were in slavery and in the desert, and he gave them his word. This is the story of the Bible. You were in a place that was not a great field, and he changed you while you were in it. Are you in Numbers 24? In Numbers 24, starting in the first verse, we have this. Now, when Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel, come on now, Balaam, how wise and intuitive was Balaam? About as much as his donkey, right? His donkey is the one that had to tell him when an angel was there. His donkey was the one that told him to stop and pray. And he had to have a crushed ankle to do it. Did adversity work in his life? Yeah, yeah because now after those things have happened, you know what he's really concerned with? What pleases the Lord? You know, if you've got to walk like this for a while, and you feel stupid every time you look at your donkey, that it might be smarter than you. He has <laughs> got a way of making an
1: effect on your life,
0: right? Suddenly that show about the fifth graders being smart doesn't look so uh, degrading, does it? This guy's donkey had him matched. Now when Balaam saw it pleased the Lord to bless Israel, he did not resort to sorcery as at other times, but turned his face towards the desert. When, where is he looking? The desert. When Balaam looked out and saw Israel in camp tribe by tribe, the Spirit of God came upon him and he uttered his oracle. The oracle of Balaam, son of Beor, the oracle of the one whose eye sees clearly is humble too. the oracle of the one who hears the words of God, who sees a vision from the almighty, who falls prostrate and whose eyes are opened. How beautiful are your tents, O Jacob, your dwelling places, O Israel. Is this what most dignitaries of nations live in? Tents?
1: No.
0: Right. When, when you go to the head uh, of our nation, the nation's capital, we go to what kind of house? What's it called? The White House, it's a its a—a figure all over the world, world recognizable, right? What if we were looking at the head of our nation going, Hey, you're in an a tent and it's beautiful. Is that something that you would choose for the head of your nation? And what direction was he looking? The desert. Well, because there was no good land to be in? No, they're right next to the promised land. So why are they in the desert? Like Valleys? They spread out like gardens beside a river, like aloes planted by the Lord, like cedars beside the waters. Water will flow from their buckets. Their seed will have abundant water. Their king will be greater than Agad. Their kingdom will be exalted. God brought them out of Egypt. They have the strength of a wild ox. They devour hostile nations and break their bones into pieces. With their arrows, they pierce them. Like a lion, they crouch... And lie down like a lioness, who dares to rouse them? May those who bless you be blessed, and those who curse you be cursed. I want you to think about that. The Lord planted them in the middle of a desert. The Lord planted them in tense, humble circumstances. He put them in the middle of all of those things, so that when He did something like overcome a powerful nation, everybody would know it's obviously not these people's great wealth, these people's great military might. They live in tents in the desert. That's like living in a van down by the river, right? (laughs) There's nothing there except the Lord. He put them in the middle of something that caused His provision to be magnified. Now, you're Americans, so you're probably not going to go hungry tonight. You are probably not even going to be bored tonight. The average person in the room probably has over a hundred choices of channels to watch tonight, much less all of the other things. What is the one way the Lord could put you in an immediate deficit so that if you had something, it would come from Him? Maybe He puts you in a situation where nobody else is filled with joy, nobody else is filled with hope. They have everything but possess nothing of worth, but you seem to. Now, if we were in another country, we may simply be saying, Lord, would you give Larissa grain tonight? Because if you give her a handful of grain and she eats, everyone will know you provided for her. But this is not your problem, Americans. What is it that you lack? Purpose, drive, contentment, fulfillment. We have everything else in the world, but we don't have that. You know how you get it? You learn to bloom in the middle of your circumstance. You learn to uh, embrace what is difficult. Jennifer Hull, did you feel an accomplishment when you climbed that mountain? Why do we climb it? Because it's there. God put it in my field. I just want to see what was at top of it. But it's a lot of energy. It's hard. Why would you do that? Because it's hard. That's why we did it. What in your spiritual life is like that? Walk into a workplace. Maybe the most foul person there is the biggest target. Why would you do that? Because it's hard. Because he's there. Because the Lord put him in my field. Are you beginning to get me? Amen. Because if the most foul person in your workplace turns around, are they going to say it's you or are they going to say only the Lord could do it? Only the Lord could do it. I was on the top ten most unsavable list at my high school. I know that. And when I got born again, everybody noticed There was not a person in our high school that didn't notice. Now, some said ugly things, some said nice things. But everybody noticed. When there's a complete bankruptcy of anything that is worthwhile and God does something good, everybody notices it. Let's be careful not to avoid those situations. Does anybody need a miracle tonight? Yeah. (laughs) Anybody in a situation where if the Lord doesn't do it, you have no hope? Turn with me to Isaiah 35. One of the Psalms that people learn to quote, especially in prison ministry, especially in uh, hospital ministry, anywhere that there seems to be needs, is Psalm 91. it speaks of the shelter of the Most High and the blessing that comes from dwelling in a shadow. And then it promises protection. It promises that a thousand will fall at on one side, ten thousand at another side, but no harm will come near you. It promises that the pestilence in the midday and the, the uh, terror that stalks at night, it, it won't harm you. And because of that, it's a very comforting psalm, right? Of course, if you really read the psalm, what it says won't come near you, what it says won't harm you, all of those things, seems to surround you all of the time. That's always overlooked. In fact, the devil even quoted a part of the psalm to Jesus. He said, hey man, the angels will hold you up so your foot won't dash against the stone. He also said you'd have to tread upon the lion and the cobra. He didn't say you could go run from them and they wouldn't be there. It. It said you would tread on them. The, the, the whole psalm ends with the statement, the middle of trouble, he'll he'll cry out to me and I'll answer him because he calls on my name, right? So maybe the psalm that's quoted the most about protection in all of the Bible, we've missed the context for. There's protection because you're in the middle of the most extraordinary difficult struggles the world has ever seen. And by the way, praying to get out of them is a waste of time. If you did get out of them, God would not get out of you what he needed Are you hearing me? He put you in the situation to shape you and form you so that he could get out of your life what he wanted. And you know what he wants? Mature weed. He wants a life that at the end of it looks completely different than the weed standing next to you. The more kind things you say, the more loving deeds that you do for those weeds that do not repent, the more harsh their judgment will be. But who knows, maybe they will repent. Then you have a brother to stand with you. Hmm? Are you all in Psalm 35?
1: Isaiah.
0: Isaiah 35. That's what I meant. While you're in Isaiah 35, I want to tell you about Jeremiah 17. <laughs> Is that okay? Yeah. Psalm speaks of a tree planted by uh, a stream, right? Everybody loves that one. In Jeremiah, we have the similar picture. We have a tree planted by a stream. But it, it addresses a different issue. It doesn't talk about how cool the streams are or how much fruit it bears. You know what it addresses? It has no fear when drought comes. You know, we need to not fear where we've been tempted. If a drought comes, if a difficulty comes, it's a chance to shape us, a chance to magnify the Lord. It is not a chance to fret, to grumble, to cry Hosanna. Why would you want Him to save you from something that He is saving you through? All of you endure surgeries at some time. I mean, you had tonsils taken out. Mama worked on you with a pocket knife and tweezers for a splinter. You know, you had some kind of surgery, great or small. Why do you endure that? Because in the end, you'll be healthy, and if you don't, you won't. What is God trying to cut out of your life? What is it that he is using circumstance to show you is not a good idea? What is it that he's trying to encourage you with? Look, I'm giving you water in the midst of rock. Got any salesmen in here that are closing sales when no one else is? It's not because you're a great salesman. Got anybody in here who's doing well in the midst of a depression? It's not because you're smarter than everybody. Got anybody in here making money in real estate when everybody else is losing their head in it? It's not just because you're brilliant. It's because the king of the universe is trying to teach you something. He's trying to be glorified in your life. Here comes our last scripture for the evening. Y'all say amen. Amen. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. Come on now, have you ever in your life seen a flower burst into bloom? (laughs) Among all the things that flowers do, I have never seen a flower burst. I saw a flower in Africa that when you touched it, it shrunk away. I saw another one on TV that if a fly landed on it, it ate it. But I have never seen a flower go (laughs) I'm blooming here.
1: <laughs> never seen it.
0: But God is using this imagery that what takes a long time, a lot of water and a lot of effort, and you think could never happen in a dry place, God can do in you. And he can do it in a second. Amen. Amen. Come on now, we need to burst into blood. He does this in the dry places, not the well-watered places. If he did it in the well-watered places, everybody would say, Good thing there was a stream here. But if he does it in the parched places, you go, How did that flower burst into bloom? There's a God at work here. Maybe God is looking to burst something into bloom in your life. I don't know what a crocus is, but maybe it's you. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it. The splendor of Carmel and Sharon, they will see the glory of the Lord and the splendor of our God. How will they see it? Something burst into bloom. Come on now, maybe God, maybe the whole world is waiting to see the glory of God just because you're bursting into bloom. Maybe everybody who is next to you in a dry field will go, my God, that corn is sprouting ears, George. it's frowning ears and all the other is dry how did that happen what's different about that oh that's the one that calls on god this never happens if we're not in difficult circumstances and sharing it with them come on they see the splendor of the glory of the lord it says strengthen the feeble hands steady the knees that give way Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear, your God will come. Come on, say to those who are feeble, your God will come. They're bursting into bloom, but he hasn't arrived. The dry land is receiving water, but he hasn't arrived. They are bursting into bloom in anticipation of him because when he shows up the way he's gonna know the difference between a wheat and a weed is one will have reached maturity and the other will still be a weed. Before they get there, he says, get strong. Why? Because your salvation's drawing near. Come on, you're Christians. What does that mean? That means my salvation is drawing near. Let's just be honest. There was a time period where I was guilty of things that I'd rather not talk about now. But one time, Miss Suzanne had to come pick me up from a little jail in Port Allen. I didn't call my parents because I thought my dad would kill me. And just before the police officer got there, I had thrown a gun into the water. Because if I got caught with that gun, it didn't exactly meet legal specifications. I hope you're not hearing about this for the first time. (laughs) No, no, okay. And all my teeth were knocked out and I would just gone through a windshield. And I called Suzanne because she was the only person I knew that I didn't think could beat me up. <laughs> if I had been convicted of something at that time, right, and then somebody showed up with a party, and I'd walked out of the jail, I wouldn't have walked out and been like this. I had been I'd have realized that I deserved something bad and got something good. I'd have realized that something was bursting into bloom in my life when really this should have been drought and desert. How is the world going to see we're Christians if we're not excited about being Christians? You want to believe that you've been pardoned that you have supernatural provision, that you can do all things through Christ Jesus who strengthens you when you act like it is a burden to be alive. How are we going to do that? <laughs> my, my stomach. My head. My, look, we're way past the days we need to celebrate Bobo's, okay? Amen. You grow out of that when you leave Miss Joe Evans' two-year-old class back there. We don't celebrate Bobo's anymore. You know what we do? We go, praise God, I have some adversity to shake my heart today. My back hurts, my arms hurt, and watch this. in the name of Jesus. Hallelujah. That's what we do. And the world goes, I don't think I could live every day in that kind of pain. And they seem to be living and living well. This is what it means to bloom where you're planted. One of my favorite people on the planet is a guy named Eddie Perkins. Eddie was in his nineties. And I said, Eddie, how are you so young? Because he was roofing his house when I met him, Charlie. He was, I think, 92, roofing his house, right, in the summer. I said, how do you stay so young? He said, I do not hang around old people. They just complain. (laughs) I I said, Eddie, go. You and Miss Eva must have been married a long time, huh? It's about six years now.
1: <laughs> <I> said,
0: really? <laughs> you know? Eddie had a positive attitude because Jesus saved him. And he was a shining light. I'm sure Eddie's gone on to be with the Lord now. But I bet he went in style.
1: Yeah.
0: I want to go on in style. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance and divine retribution. He will come to save you. You don't need any vengeance. And you don't need any retribution. Say that. No vengeance. No no retribution. No retribution. You know why? God will bring it when he comes. You don't need to have any of it right now. In fact, every bit of vengeance that you take for yourself, every bit of retribution that you take for yourself, you're stealing from God because it belongs to him. He will bring it when he comes. It's a part of your salvation is retribution. That's a part of salvation. You don't have to take it. You know how freeing that is? That means you can look in a weed and you don't have to say, Well, oh, I wish you would have. No, no, it's already coming. Don't worry about it. You have a chance to show mercy and maybe you'll get saved. Amen. Come on, that ought to change your day. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened. Really? When you don't have to worry about retribution anymore, you don't have to worry about vengeance anymore, then you'll see the world in a new way? Really? Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like deer and the mute tongues shout for joy. They will bloom where they are planted because they have met their God. Water will gush forth in the wilderness in streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool. The thirsty ground bubbling springs in their haunts where jackals once lay. Grass and reeds and papyrus will grow and a highway will be there. It would be called the way of holiness. The early followers of Jesus called themselves followers of the way. They had learned to bloom where they were planted. They were in the midst of Roman paganism. They were in the midst of Greek dirty spirituality. They were in the midst of poverty, oppression, persecution gave the world the best gift we've ever known, the story about Jesus that you hold in your hands. They bloomed where they were planted. He goes on to talk about the way that the redeemed walk, but I've been telling you about it for an hour. You know the redeemed because they bloom where they were planted. We're going to close. I'm going to tell you about a friend of mine named Jeffrey Newman. Jeffrey and I haven't spoken in a few years just because life's taken us in different directions. But Jeffrey was a musician. He still is a musician and a clever songwriter. And Bob Dylan apparently got saved and didn't stay that way. He had an album called Slow Train A-Coming. It had beautiful songs on it. Man gave name to the animals. You have to serve somebody. Amazing songs. He was an American folk singer, a legend, for you young people that don't know what I'm talking about. And he began to sing, sing songs about Jesus. And it didn't last. It didn't last. He faded out just like he faded in. And he now calls those the most miserable years of his life. So Jeffrey wrote the song as if he were Bob Dylan that Bob should have written. It was called Bloom Where You Were Planted. And I can't sing it for you, but among some of its lyrics are bloom where you Are planted that your fragrance carry far. joy comes to the desert when she bears a single flower it's biblical imagery he's always put his people in the midst of adversity so that when something beautiful comes out of it you know it's him this makes us like James rejoice when trials of various kinds come on us y'all stand up and let's pray